Wow. This has been a, a powerful time of worship. I told Craig before we sat together in my office and I told him I was just feeling a lot of weight about today's sermon. And uh, I, I think what it is I've just seen time and time again that when the people of God come together, and we behave as a family, and we give ourselves to one another, even if we just are just trying and it's not all the way there yet, and we're a dysfunctional family. Just in the trying, the Holy Spirit comes in. So in some ways, I believe that this morning is um, special and different But in other ways, I believe it's just indicative. (laughs) A sign of times to come. I am concerned about today's sermon uh, because the text that we're reading from is powerful. And because it's powerful, it's popular. And because it's popular... It's not quite as powerful. We've been studying Philippians and now we're in Philippians 3. And I just want to remind you from the first sermon where I gave an, kind of an overview of Philippians that we're moving through. I'm giving, this is a very quick, broad outline of the book. It's a friendship letter, you remember? My affairs, your affairs, our affairs, my appeal. Four chapters. Uh, I'm really, honestly, I'm butchering it. It's more complicated than that, but just for the sake of not spending more time on that, my affairs, your affairs, our affairs, my appeal. This is our affairs. So this is, chapter three is uh, Paul saying, here's something to say that is for all of us. It's not just must primarily about Paul. It's not primarily about you. This is all of us. Now, the reason that I'm concerned about the sermon is that there are some massive statements in this sermon that are uh, commonly used. And any time that something has extraordinary power and is frequently spoken... The challenge that I'm carrying in myself and that I want to just ask you to consider for yourself is, can I think about this for the first time again? There are some statements in here that we read and we have read and we've read and we speak them aloud and I wonder, can I say that for me? The struggle that I've had in even writing the sermon is that there are some statements here that I'm, 
Am I allowed to still be your pastor and wonder if I can say that for myself? Chapter 3, verse 1. There might be some notes today, by the way. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. This is a transitional statement. Further means that he's breaking away from what he's just said uh, at the end of chapter 2. Just to remind you, chapters and verses are not part of the canon. We added those later to help us reference. So he didn't say, end of chapter 2, now let me start chapter 3. He just said, further. What that tells us is that's probably a good place for a chapter. That's why we have it. He just makes a transitional statement further. He reminds them, brothers and sisters, you see how now he is transitioning into the our affairs part of the letter. And then he is basically just saying, uh, it's easy for me to rejoice. Is it easy for you to rejoice? (laughs) Is it easy for you to rejoice? All right, not today. (laughs) Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. Now you probably have in a room this size with this many people, a number of different translations. Um, If you wouldn't mind, would you just yell out, mine says... Here, watch out for those dogs. What does it say here? Can we go back one? Watch out. You see that? Does anyone have anything different in your translation? Just yell it out. Beware. Beware. Look out. out. Yes. So there's multiple. The word that he used, there's different ways to understand it. Uh, One of the best ways would be observe, observe, observe. That's what he's saying. We have changed it in the English to look like this, but it's, he wrote it to be intentionally repetitive, almost poetic. Observe the dogs, observe the evildoers, observe the mutilators. One of the things he means is heads up. Heads up means uh, be aware of because there's something getting ready to happen that you need to get your eyes up. The other thing he could be saying is consider. And that's what I think is closest. So if someone is getting ready to make a big point, they first say, consider this. And then they begin to speak about that thing. Now, he says, dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. Strong language. Another way to talk about the original word for dogs would have been Uh, Men with bad ideas or bad intentions. Dogs. I think we would say pigs, wouldn't we? I think in order for me to go forward, I need to just make a note about circumcision, especially for those who are either here or watching online and are not familiar with that concept and how it, uh, what it means to us. There's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament circumcision. We know of it as the medical act on a male. What it meant was setting aside, 
setting aside, making different, setting over here, circumcised and uncircumcised. And you remember it happened just as they crossed over the Jordan River into Babylon before they were to begin to clear out the land, they were to be circumcised. Into the New Testament, those who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah stuck with that concept of circumcision. But for those who did believe that Jesus was the Son of God, their concept of circumcision was different. They maintained this idea that to be circumcised is to be set aside, but there was this big conversation over whether do we actually need the medical act anymore? And then that elevated to, if you think that that medical act does something for you, Paul calls them mutilators. We're going to dig into this, but I want to ensure that we see he's holding these two concepts against each other. In fact, he uses two words, katatome, peritome. You see how he's playing? Katatome, peritome. They are the katatome, we are the peritome. He's intentionally chosen two words that sound like each other to show how they are different from one another. And the first is violent. He's aggressive against it. The other thing to notice here is that mutilators is an activity. Those mutilators, mutilators are those who, the act of mutilation. But if he's following that language, he should say, but we are the circumcisers. He changes the language. It's no longer an act, it's a being. We are the circumcision. That's weird. There's something outer versus inner here, and then he moves to hint, uh, he hints at the weakness in the flesh. He says, we serve God by his spirit. This is something we don't talk about a lot in the church. You woke up this morning and breathed a breath because his spirit gave you breath. That's why when I prayed here and we prayed as a family, it's fine to admit that our faith may not be enough. I, my words are not enough. I can't even stand on my own. We didn't worship by our own power. There is a massive distinction of uh, religious belief between these two groups. One of them says, if I do these things, I am set apart. And I'm going to pause there because they go much further than that. He's so against that, he stands over here and says, you are mutilators by thinking that way. Moving forward, we put we who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I really struggle with this. I'm very confident. I'm very confident in myself. My wife can tell you that that is a constant battle 
my aptitude, my ability to do things, I fall in love with it very easily. The number of times when I have a conversation and I leave and the Holy Spirit checks me and say, why did you accept that so easily? When one of you will even come up and say something about a sermon and I respond and talk about it, and I'm not saying I shouldn't say thank you if you like the sermon, or if I do something and you like it, I shouldn't say thank you. What I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit is asking me in my heart, why were you so excited to accept that? Why did you put confidence in your flesh like that, Nathan? Righteousness in the flesh is mutilation. That's what he's saying. Now, this is in the positive. I'm saying in the positive. I'm saying things that I can do things that I'm able to do, reasons that I think that I may be qualified. Many of you are in that boat. You think, I am a capable person. I am an educated person. I have learned things. I have done things. I do the very best that I can with my life, and that seems to be pretty good compared to everyone else. And so, there you go. I'm righteous. He calls it mutilation. The opposite is also true. I have done this and this and this. I owe so much. Look at all the ways that I've messed up. Look at all the mistakes that I've made. I am completely unqualified. Also mutilation. Also mutilation. We are not qualified or unqualified by our flesh. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Right family, Hebrew of Hebrews. Right behavior, Pharisee. Right passion, zealous persecutor. Right merit, righteous based on the law, faultless. He's got it all together. In Santiago, Chile, downtown, there is this place called the Plaza de Armas. And if you go there, it's filled with people, probably maybe not during the pandemic, but uh, it often has a lot of people in it. It's a main downtown area. And it's one of those places that has both the ancient architecture and the brand new architecture kind of next to each other. But if you go to one side of that plaza and you look up, you will see the Metropolitan, let me look it up, I didn't memorize that, Metropo- Santiago Metropolitan Cathedral. Gorgeous building. Took 50 years, started in the late 1700s. And this thing would stretch all the way down, halfway down the block that way, come all the way through the corner. A gorgeous structure. And as you stand back and look at it, what you'll see is these 12 large pillars 
lining the entire front of that building. Twelve massive pillars right on the front of that building. Only they're not pillars. They're an architectural aesthetic called pilasters. And they do nothing. They're added when the building is complete to look like pillars. And they stand there majestic with the appearance of power, taking all credit for structural integrity and benefit to the building when actually they're just rock and stone concrete weight burdening the facade. Right family, right behavior, right passion, and right merit. We are tempted to put up pilasters for one another. These are the things that make me righteous before you. I came from the right family. Look at how hard I'm working. I have the right behavior. I have great passion. Look at how how much I care about what we're doing. And I have good merit. Look at all that I've earned. If we are holding up these things of the fleshly value for one another, Christ, not in them, but just for us, Paul calls it mutilation. Verse 7, but whatever gains, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. This is an example of what I told you at the beginning. Can we actually read this for the first time? I count it all but loss. We've sung it. We've spoken it. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Personal gains as loss. He holds in such central, core, overwhelming necessity the life in Christ that anything that might happen in his life that is successful or is held up as a pilaster. That means that it could even be the thing that I did wrong and I let everyone know when I introduce myself, hi, my name is so-and-so and I got a big testimony for you. And it's the thing that I did wrong 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and I'm still holding it up as a part of my personal pilaster for you to see. This is why I'm unqualified. This is why I'm qualified. And Paul says, anything outside of Christ, I consider a loss. Now he goes even a step further. I consider everything a loss. One of the problems with that big building, that metropolitan theater or cathedral, 
is that it sits on the Akatama fault line. And so for a thousand years, they have been renovating that building, trying to fix it. The pilasters have done nothing to help. Nobody even touches the pilasters. They just sit there for everyone to see. The architects go deep into the inside of the building where the actual pillars are positioned, holding up the structure, ignoring this aesthetic for everyone out front, moving deep into the core to ensure that the building will not fall. Paul is having a very different conversation about God than the Jews. The Jews are painting their pilasters. Paul is renovating his pillars. What are we doing? How frequently does this register in our daily lives? I consider these things a loss for Christ. Is there a time where the Holy Spirit might check you, where when something happens, whether it be positively or negatively, and you think about how this might look to other people, or whether this might qualify you or disqualify you from heaven, how frequently do we think, I want to know Christ and the things that are personal gains to me are out here, those I have to consider them lost because I want to know Christ. In fact, everything that could be a gain, I consider it a loss. Actually, he goes further. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. If you have been in church for some time, you've heard a pastor go on about garbage, that it's more than garbage, it's worse than garbage. We aren't comfortable in our culture saying what Paul said it was. Let me leave it at that. Vile, disgusting, offensive, rejected. Verse 9. He begins to summarize. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not having a righteousness that come of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Where does your righteousness come from? I'm not going to get stirred up on this one. I just want to ask you, when you think about being righteous, where does that come from? Is there something in you that says, I am righteous because I have done these things? Because I'm living a righteous life? Is there something in you that says, 
look at the life that I am living compared to other people, I am a righteous person. I want to know Christ. Say that with me. I want to know Christ. That is it. Know in the intimate sense of no. Know in the indwelling sense of no. That there is a life that I am living, but I cannot give you that life and receive back righteousness. I want to know Christ. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in the participation of his sufferings. Can we say this as if we are hearing it for the first time? I am living the best life I can live, but I cannot give it to you as righteousness. As far as righteousness goes, I want to know Christ for that. I want to know him in every way there is to know him. I want to know him in his resurrection. I want to know him in his suffering. I saw a mob one time. I did. We had just moved to Uganda and I heard something outside of our, of our wall. And I went up and I'm just the same height as the wall and there was some vines here. So they couldn't see me, but I could see them. And I looked over and they had caught a man that they thought was stealing something. And they had, the whole mob had him stretched out like this and they were carrying him down the street. And as they were carrying him down the street, people were grabbing stones from next to my property and hitting his body as he was stretched out helpless. They took sticks and things and they smacked him and whipped him and he was yelling, give me the police, call the police, because the police would help him. Nothing I could do about it. I just watched him over. I watched him drag him all the way down around the corner. And I realized... For as much as I have read the Bible, I've never seen a mob. These are more than just words. We're all going to go about our lives and we're going to go get groceries and we're going to mow the lawn and then we're going to sit down and we're going to read the Bible on the porch and what the words say is I want to know him. I want a participation in his suffering. I want to become like him in death. Jesus was dragged down the street and he was whipped. Can I really read this? It would be a lot easier to paint my pilasters. At least you think I'm righteous. What's happening deep, deep, deep inside of here? Holy Spirit's not going to help us paint the pilasters. He's going inside because we are living our lives on fault lines. Not that I have already obtained all this. 
he says, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Some odd wordplay here. If you look back in verse 3, he says, we who are the circumcision. Present tense. We are the circumcision. You remember what it's in contrast to. You've done all these things on the outside to dress yourself up and to make the appearance of righteousness, which is actually mutilation, but we actually are the circumcision in the present tense. But now he's saying things that are, it seem inconsistent with that. How can you be set apart? You are the circumcision, but you haven't yet taken hold of it? He says in verse 10 that I want to know Christ. We who are the circumcision, but want to know Christ. We who are the circumcision becoming like him. We who are the circumcision attaining to the resurrection. So there is both a present tense reality, this is who I am, and a forward-looking movement of things that are still happening. Christians are already and not yet. Christians are already and not yet. And we use the same word for both. Sanctified. I am sanctified already and I'm being sanctified. Now he actually uses a stronger word and I'm going to touch on it. Perfect. That's a scary word for us. He says, I am perfect and I'm not yet perfect. Some of our Bibles may have translated it as mature. Look at verse 15. All of us then who are mature, some of you may actually have a translation that says perfect. Verse 12 and 13. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. To take hold of the things that I have done and all of the reasons that I can come up with to give myself as qualified or unqualified on my basis is mutilation. To come over here and to take hold of the being set apart. I am set apart and I am becoming And I am moving. And I am actively being set apart. I'm set apart and I'm being set apart. That's where we are together. That's circumcision. That's sanctification. Sanctified and being sanctified. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind What's behind you? What's behind you? When you sit and you try to read your Bible, what's behind you? 
When you stand and you think you want to raise your hand and worship the Lord, what's behind you? What's speaking to you? If we live our lives right here, everything is behind us. All of the monsters that have ever been in our lives are behind us. And saying, you are not worthy, look at what you've done. Or even worse, you are so worthy, look at what you've done. What's behind you? Because Paul says, okay, but one thing, my brothers and sisters, one thing, forgetting what is behind me. Some of us need to forget what is behind us. You may have had everything given to you. You may have worked yourself to the bone to put a few things behind you so that you can be worthy. But one thing, forget it. Forget it. It's not only nothing, it's garbage. It's in your way. Whatever you have done to earn Christ is in your way of receiving Christ. Now, maybe you think, well, what's behind me is a whole bunch of garbage. A whole bunch of failure. A whole bunch of mistakes. And I don't even really want everybody here to know about them. But one thing. Forget what is behind you. I've got a lot of stuff behind me. And some days I've got to wake up and forget it again. Straining toward what is ahead. Are we straining? Can we use that word? I want to know Jesus. I'm not impressed with myself. I am not impressed and I want to forget. I want to strain. Strain for Him. I want to live a life of straining for Jesus. So I press on to the goal. To win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Jesus Christ. All of us then who are perfect should take a view of such things. A lot of pastors try to invite the community into the church by saying, you don't have to be perfect to come here. I have a book in my office. I don't know where it came from. I didn't buy it. It says, no perfect people allowed. What a a misunderstanding of Scripture. To be perfect is to strain. To strain for Him. Paul himself says he hasn't taken hold of it, but he strains and he calls himself perfect. Even moving on in verse 16 and 17 to say, follow my example. It is okay for us to be already and not yet. I am already set 
aside. I'm sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's by that same power that I am being sanctified. There should not be a pressure in this room to have arrived if Paul has not arrived. Let us always be arriving together. Let us be becoming together, attaining together, moving forward together. Already, but not yet. I want to press on with you. I want to press on. We can only press on when we ignore the aesthetic pilasters and move deep into the structural integrity. How are the internal pillars of your life? I want to be a part of them. I got a phone call from somebody in this church asking, saying, Nathan, I'm aware of some problems in the life of a friend of mine. How deep should I go? Family, brothers and sisters, we go to the middle. We go to the core. We need to know each other, to be warm enough with one another that we can go way beyond the pilasters out front and move deep into the integrity because that marriage, those parents, this addiction, this life is sitting on a fault line. This is worth nothing. Let's know Christ together. Let's know Him together. Forgetting what is behind. Straining towards what is in front. Let's stand together and worship.